Rabbi Targin is going to give a shir now on five phrases of redemption. The Vakasha, Rabbi Targin, the screen is yours. Okay. Um, welcome, everyone. Welcome. It's good to see everyone. Um, um, we're slowly pulling our way out of Corona, so it's nice to start this way by beginning Pesach and our preparations for Pesach by learning a little Torah together, and hopefully we'll see each other in person very soon. Are we able to share each other's lives and our last two years and uh, together in person. Um, the uh, Haggadah, or the Sipur Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, which is the mitzvah of this evening, is a victim of the Haggadah. And that would sound like a very strange statement. How could the Sipur Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim <coughs> be the victim of the Haggadah? Well, the mitzvah is to describe the events that happened the night we left Egypt. Throughout the generations, the process of describing those events became canonized as a Haggadah, where there's a particular text, and as we call it, a particular Seder, and as all of our children know, Kadesh, Urchatz, Karpas, Yachatz. And part of a Haggadah is a very, very pronounced, almost elongated introduction, which spans Kadesh and Urchatz and Yachatz, and it's all just an introduction. But the problem is, and it's a, it's a very fortunate problem, is that we have so much energy pent up and so much excitement and so much enthusiasm that we spend hours on the introduction, which is all just a stylistic introduction. What happens in the beginning of the Seder? Well, after Kiddush, Kiddush is the standard fare. Then we break a matzah, and it's just an attempt to arouse interest, to demonstrate the poverty of our slavery, the children ask the four questions, but it's, we would say it's very symbolic. Those aren't the real questions. We know the que- question. You can't have questions that you know already. You want there to be new questions, new ideas that your mind are being provoked to ask and to inquire about. Then the answer of Avadim Hayin was a very, very one-word quick answer. I, of course, I've forgotten Karpas, and we spend so much time describing the Karpas. It's just a chance to clap our hands and get everyone, awaken everyone. There's something different tonight. And as part of that stylistic introduction, we speak about five rabbis who conducted an all-night seder in B'nai Brach, just to set the tone. And as part of that stylistic introduction, we describe four different children, just to set the tone, just as a literary device to create an air of inquiry. And just to introduce the process, we talk about a Kodesh Baruch Hu's promises to us, which really don't talk about Mitzrayim per se, and we just come with so many notes and so many different Torah and so many rabbis, so it's a rabbi's full, so many rabbis are talking so much Torah on Karpas and on B'nai Brak. And wherever, whether Loza Ben Azariah's beard was white or was it black or was it a little white? And why was it white? And what happens? It's now 1030. Your wife is rolling her eyes at you because the soup that she labored over for four days is getting cold. The kids are climbing the chandeliers. You've got elderly people at the Seder. They're getting hungry. So the Balasader says, we haven't really started the conversation. Balasader says, you know what, everyone? Just daven up the Haggadah so we can get to Dayenu. Everyone daven the Haggadah like you daven. So everyone daven the Haggadah so really quickly. You get to Dayenu, we all start singing Dayenu. And something very odd has happened. We haven't cut any ground. We haven't really described what happened beyond the simple uh, platitudes. We left Mitzrayim, we were enslaved. But beyond platitudes, we haven't engaged in the actual discussion of the events. That discussion takes place in a section 
And unfortunately, we skip too quickly and too often. It's called Seulamad. Seulamad is the nuclear core of the story. And that's the part that we don't read carefully enough. Seulamad is a four Pasuk section taken from Parshas Kitavo. In Parshas Kitavo, a person is bringing his Bikurim on his shoulders into the Beis HaMikdash. And he wants to describe the historical context for his gratitude, for his success, for Beis HaMikdash. Please take a look at the sheet, which I'll, square, which I'll share now. These are the four psukim in Parshas Kitavo, which we excerpt during our Haggadah. Four psukim. The first Pasuk describes the descent. We know it as Arami Overavi because that's the one that we're most familiar with. Arami Overavi, Vayarei Mitzoyma. The first Pasuk is descent. The second Pasuk, Vayarei Osan HaMitzvim Vayanunu, Vayitnunu Leinu Vodah Kasha, slavery, bondage. The third Pasuk, Vanitzaka Lashem, Elokea Vosenu, Vishma Hashem, Eskoleinu, Vayaras, and Yenus, Anuleinus, Nachasenu. I heard the Rav Moshe related to this Pasuk, prayer. The fourth Pasuk, redemption. Yitzayinu Hashem, Elokeinu, Mimitzayim, Biyad Chazaka, Uvizra Nituya, these are the four verses that condense the entire story. Descent, persecution, prayer, and redemption. The Haggadah then takes each of these phrases. Just look at the Pesukim. There must be about 30, 35 phrases here. And it dissects each phrase, taking one phrase and amplifying what that phrase means. What it tells us about the persecution, what it tells us about the redemption. And it amplifies that phrase in this section by finding a parallel phrase somewhere in Tanakh, where that phrase also appears. But in that other verse, elsewhere in Tanakh, the context is much clearer. And based on that context and the other location in Tanakh, we can better understand this section and what happened in Mitzrayim. Believe me, that's the core of the Seder. The Seder begins with Seulamad. Everything is just a grand, elaborate introduction. But we come with so much excitement to the Haggadah that we, I hate to say the word waste our time. You can't call anything wasting your time, but it's painful with me as well. When people spend, at the seders that I attend, so much time describing what karpas means and what types of vegetables and what the matri of karpas is and what it sounds like. And it's all just a trick to get the kids interested. And everything is just an introduction until we get to this section. So tonight I want to read how the Haggadah deconstructs this fourth, this fourth Pasuk, which is isolated, which is highlighted. Remember, the first Pasuk where my cursor is describes descent. The second Pasuk describes the persecution. The third Pasuk describes prayer. The fourth Pasuk describes redemption. Now, when the Haggadah addresses that fourth Pasuk in Kitavo, in the Arami Ovid Avi section, it slices it up into five units. What are the five units, the five qualifiers, the five modifiers of our redemption? Hashem redeemed us biyad chazaka, one. Uvizra nitriya, two. Uvimaragadol, three. Uviotot, four. Uvimoftim, five. So there are five qualifiers in this final pasuk describing redemption. Again, biyad chazaka, zra nitriya, maragadol, Otot and Mufti. Now let's see how the Agada illustrates and portrays that night based on these five terms. So what does Yad Chazaka mean? So we say this every year in the Agada, but we're so busy davening 
that we're not paying attention. We're so busy signing it so quickly. When Hashem redeemed us, the phrase in Kitava, what does it mean? So we're saying the Haggadah, Yad Chazakah, Zohadever. That refers to the Dever. Now, how does the Haggadah, how does this just a Medrash, how does the Medrash know that the qualifier of Yad Chazakah refers to Dever? Because in Parshas, Va'era, when Dever was introduced into the scene, Hashem referred to it as his hand. This is a Pasuk in Shmos Perektes, Parshas Va'era, the lateral location of Dever, Hine Yad Hashem, my hand will afflict your cattle. So if in Parsha's Va'era, when Dever is being introduced, it's introduced as a phrase of Yad Hashem, then back in Kitavo, Yad Chazakah must refer to Dever. Okay. Why is Yad Chazakah a nickname for Dever? If I asked you to name the Maka that you think is Yad Chazakah, I bet you if I took a poll, Dever would come in maybe seventh. I know the Makos that would come in first. Barad. Makas Bechoros. Dam. Maybe Choshech. Dever? Of all the Makos, Dever is the one that's Yad Chazaka? But we say it so quickly every year that we, we, we shouldn't have time to think. Why is the phrase in I call out or shout out to Deber. The answer is as follows. You see, we simplify makos into plagues. And as plagues, they have a dual function. Number one, to punish the Egyptians for the 200 years of exploitation. Number two, to break their will, thereby releasing the Jewish people. The truth is, these are not plagues. They're multifaceted events that have many other functions beyond the penal function and beyond the um, conversion function to convert the Egyptian will. That's why in the Torah, they're called by different names. They're sometimes called makot. Sometimes they're called otot. Sometimes they're called moftim. Sometimes they're called shvatim. Sometimes they're called magefotai. Five different phrases. Evidently, there are multiple functions to these, what I like to say, are events. I don't use the word 10 plagues. Because 10 plagues narrows them into one particular root, one particular function, and they're not. One of the functions of these 10 events, these 10 phenomena, is to retrain the world, the Jewish people, the Egyptians, through the Egyptians, the entire world of antiquity, towards monotheism. The ancient world is mired in paganism. And Hashem is beginning the march of monotheism. It's a march. It won't happen overnight. It won't happen in 2448. It will take a while. Thousands of years later, the world we inhabit, 5,782, by and large monotheistic. Not pure monotheism, but by and large monotheism. That's a march. It's a journey. The journey begins that night or that year, as we're being liberated. And Hashem is trying to debunk pagan myths and introduce basic themes of monotheism. I could speak for hours about all the different themes of monotheism that are displayed during this year of events. But one of the principles of monotheism, which is completely discrepant with paganism, pagan gods are larger images of humans. They're crafted by humans. 
and they're just stronger versions of humans. Hashem, the Melech Malchei Hamlachim, isn't physical. Ein lo guf, lo There's nothing physical that can apply to Hashem. He doesn't have a nose, he doesn't have anger, he doesn't have a body. It's a hard religion to grasp. It's an even harder religion to succeed at when Hashem isn't physical. Dever is HaKadosh Baruch Hu's attempt to debunk the pagan notion that gods are physical. Look at the board, look at the page. He announces, My hand will afflict your cattle. What is the average Egyptian, and probably for that matter, the average Jew, because Jews were still more or less paganists, they weren't able to conceive of monotheism. What do they imagine? When Hashem says, my hand will take your cattle, they imagine that there'll be this big hand descending from heaven, because God is a hand, like humans have a hand, lifting up the cattle and pulling them to heaven. Hine Yad Hashem, the hand of God, will remove your cattle. <clears throat> what did the Egyptians see? Nothing. Dever is the only, I'll qualify this in a moment, the only invisible event. Every other event had some palpable element to it, converting water to blood, frogs invading, insects and vermin overrunning, wild animals, saras like shrin, hail and thunder. Even the darkness was palpable, v'yamei shchoshech. Dever was invisible. It was probably a pandemic, a pandemic which afflicted animals, and I'll talk about this in a moment. It was a virus. And for the first time, the human imagination was being taught that Hashem occupies an invisible world. So it was almost taunting, not really taunting them, to taunt them, was setting up expectations which were dashed. Those dashed expectations were illustrative, were educational. Here's my hand. Egyptians are looking to heaven, waiting for a hand. Nothing. Invisible. That's the point. I am invisible. I don't have a hand with knuckles and fingers and sinews. I'm invisible. So every year in the Haggadah, when we say, Yad Chazak Dever, it's not because Dever was stronger, more powerful, more crushing, because it had a theological component, which other plays or other events didn't have. Now, of course, you're thinking, well, there's another event that was invisible, and that's the 10th plague, or the 10th event of death, Makas Bacharos. And the truth is that logically the two are tandem events. Dever is five, Bacharos is 10. Dever is a virus that afflicts the animal population. Of course, we know that once it spreads in the animal population, it's pretty soon going to spread to the human population. We've learned that lesson the hard way. Hashem halted the Dever. The Egyptians, Chazal tell us, had every expectation they would die in Dever. Hashem halted the Dever, delayed it, giving the Egyptians a chance to recover and possibly reform. When they didn't, Bukharos was the tail end of Dever. Five became ten. And that's why the second time the word Yad Chazaka appears in the Torah, not in Parshas Kitavo, Yad Chazaka, but in the end of the Torah, L'chol HaYad Chazaka, L'chol Yisrael, that's why there, Chazal say, that's not Dever, that's Becharos. Namely, the word Yad Chazaka, the phrase Yad Chazaka appears twice. Once in Kitavo, once in Bezot Bracha. In Kitavo, it's referring to Dever. In Bezot Bracha, it's referring to Makas Becharos. The common denominator is their Yad Hashem that you can't see. They saw nothing in Dever, they saw nothing in Becharos. 
The other eight, they felt, they saw, they witnessed. So the other eight didn't have that capacity to debunk the physicality of God. These two did, Dever and Mecharos. That's why it's called Yad Hasaka, and we're starting to learn about what happened that night. What happened that night was not just penal, and not just emancipating the Jews, but monotheism is being introduced into the grand stage. Okay? Now let's move to the second phrase, Uvizra Nitriya. Hashem liberated us with an outstretched arm. Again, we say this every year in the Haggadah. Let's flip to the Haggadah, source number two. The sword. Now, how does the Haggadah know that the phrase in Kitava refers to a sword? Well, we get that from Divrei Hayamim. Divrei Hayamim quotes David, witnessing an angelic apparition, threatening the city of Yerushalayim with a sword, the Charbo Shlufa Biado. A sword clutched in the angel's hand, nituya, that's our key word, Ayushalayim. So here in Devar in Divrahayamim, you have the word nituya, but the word nituya holding a sword, something in the hand. So if in Divrahayamim, Zra Nituya is holding a sword, then back in Kitava, Zra Nituya means holding a sword. Okay. We've solved the riddle. But I know the Makos very well. And I don't know a Maka called sword. There's no Maka called Cherev. Yet we say this every year in the Haggadah. Hashem redeemed us with a Cherev, or Zerah Nituyah in Kitava, which means a Cherev. What does that mean? What happened that night that is encoded or in, embedded in the word Cherev? The answer is as follows. There really are two answers. There are different ways to organize or sequence the makos. Again, we're a little trapped because of Yehuda Hayanosim Bahem Simanim, and the Agadah cites only one version, and we get locked into a 3 3 4 series. Ditzach, Adash, Biachav. So in our minds, there's only one way to ordinate the makos 3 3 and 4. The truth is, there's an endless, endless amount of permutations and an endless amount of crosslinks. And if you read the Makos carefully, you'll discover a lot of, I, I delivered a series of shirim on this a few years ago in Yutara. If you want to do some more study, some more learning, I recommend it. Different cross-links between Makos. There's a medrash that suggests that the 10 Makos were organized as one series of 10. Not 3, 3, and 4, but one series of 10. What were they meant to resemble? Ancient warfare. This is the beginning of the Medrash. The Taxis Melech Basar Vadam, Heviakarish Barhu Alam as Hamakos. How did ancient war unfold? Well, the first stage is to lay siege to the city and to cut off the water and the food supply. You want to weaken the population. Stage two, you don't just want to weaken them, you want to disorient them. So you blow loud horns day and night. You clasp the iron day and night. Woo! We've seen the movies. You've, seen the, you've read about them. You've seen the paintings of warfare with the loud drums and the banging and clasping spears and the loud blow horns. People can't sleep. People, you know what it's like. I'm sure some of you live in urban areas where there's constant beeping of cars and constant noise pollution. You can't think, you can't think, can't have your own 
mind to yourself. You're all discombobulated. And then the next stage were the archers. As you know, the archers were extremely valuable in ancient warfare. Um, little known fact, excuse me, I'm a rabbi, I shouldn't be doing this, but the origin of the middle finger. When you used to capture archers and you wanted to um, re- reparate prisoners of war, so you wanted to disable them from being archers. So how would you disable someone from being an archer? You'd cut off his middle finger. And then you'd return the person to the other side, but he could no longer be an archer. In ancient warfare, one side would try to psych out and demoralize the other side by bringing all their best warriors to the front line before the war. Those of you who've seen Braveheart or other movies, very similar to, to those scenes. And in order to try to intimidate the other side, you'd bring all your archers to the front line to demonstrate your aerial power. How would you demonstrate how many archers you had? They'd all hold up their middle fingers because holding up your middle finger was a sign that you could function as an archer. So the middle finger was never intended to be a curse sign or, or, or an aggressive sign. It was meant to be a sign that you're an archer. So you bring in the archers. And then after you bring in the archers, you unleash uh, the freaks, the giants, the monsters, the people with clubs that run through town and bash people's heads in and rape women and set fire to storehouses and set fire to public areas. At some point, those wild, vicious, aggressive, they'll be quelled. They'll be suppressed. But again, you're sowing fear and dread and panic and uncertainty. There's arrows and there's, there, there's uh, people trampling through town and trampling upon homes. And, and then you start catapulting boulders and boulders that are on fire with boulders that are lit with oil. And only after you have weakened the indigenous population, do you then send in the infantry? If you send in the infantry too early, you'll suffer intolerable losses. Because I'll say, that's how the Ten Makos resembled war. First, Hashem cut off the water supply. And keep in mind, the Egyptians did not eat cow. They didn't eat red meat because they worshipped them as deities. So if you're not eating red meat in Egypt, what's your primary source of protein? It's going to be the fish of the Nile. That's why the Torah makes special mention of the fact How do we know, of course, that the Egyptians ate fish? Because the Jews were nostalgic about the fish. So they, in, in the de- desert, preposterously, they missed the fish. So after Makas Dam, you've got no fresh water for agriculture, for drinking. You've got no source of protein. Then you've got these loud, croaking frogs. When we hear a frog, we think it's cute. We think, oh, how sweet, how pastoral. What if you multiply? What if you scaled it to 10 million? What if you had 10 million frogs in your backyard croaking all day and all night? You'd go crazy. You'd go out of your mind. Then Chazal say the archers were sent. Then here's a bit of a stretch. Chazal associate the kinim with archers. Kinim were not the kinim of Israeli gun, of your grandchildren, who come home with a little bit of lice in their hair. Kenan were vermin and rabbits and hedgehogs and mice, and the entire ground was filled with these animals who evidently nipped at them and pierced their skin. That's, that's a, a bit of a metaphoric stretch. Then, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu unleashed these freakish animals, all converged upon the cities, sowing fear and dread, followed by the shrin, the hot, boiling, bubbling skin, which uh, simulated an effect of being on fire followed by the catapulted boulders of Barad, and then concluding with the infantry. In Tanakh, a swarm of locusts is a metaphor for an army. In Yoel, Perak Beis, 
we are called Chelia Gadol. We're Hashem's army, and we are actually the locusts. That's why in Yoel there's a locust stream in Israel, Chelia Gadol, because they are uniform, because they are un- innumerable. You just see the swarm of locusts, like marching in lockstep, as if, just imagine, you see this old footage of, the, of World War II and the Chinese the Chinese uh, soldiers just streaming across these hills and across these ridges and uncountable numbers. So the Makos were meant to resemble war. When we say every year in the Haggadah, we refer to not an actual war, but a metaphysical war, a figurative war. Hashem conducted this year as if he were going to war with the Egyptians. Why was it important that the 10 events be structured in warlike fashion? The answer is, it's not just a message for the Egyptians. It's more importantly, a message for the Jewish people. The original itinerary had the Jewish people leaving Egypt on the 15th of Nisan, receiving the Torah seven weeks later from Har Sinai to Israel as a 15-day walk. They would have arrived around June 15th in our terms. And they were poised to capture the land, construct the Mikdash, establish Jewish dynasty, and create utopia and end history. History was supposed to end in 2448. Everything we've experienced until from that point has been an unfortunate detour a detour of our own making, of our own flaws. We were not meant to be through on this odyssey through history. We're meant to live in our land and create utopia and inspire the world towards greater knowledge of Hashem. That original itinerary had a band of slaves waging war against 30 tribes in the land of Canaan, 30 vicious militias, a few weeks after they were slaves. Rav Amitav would always speak with us about how unimaginable it was, the miracles. We speak about the 67 war as if it were more miraculous than the independence war, and certainly the conclusions were, the, 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 the resolution of that war. But keep in mind that the war of 48 was being waged by a lot of ragtag European refugees who had just arrived on boats, who had seen their families murdered in front of their very own eyes, who had been demoralized and, 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 and broken by the horror they had witnessed. They didn't even speak the same language that Amitai used to tell us. So how was this band of slaves that had been persecuted and discriminated against and dehumanized for 200 years in Egypt, how were they expected to fight this battle, which was a few months away, unless they have full confidence that Hashem knows warfare, that God knows how to wage war? So the 10 events were structured as if a war was taking place, so the Jews would then have confidence a few months later, according to the original plan, 40 years later, as it gets deferred. And that's why the makos, excuse the expression, but they bleed very naturally into the Yamsuf, because the Yamsuf was real war, because the Yamsuf had steeds and chariots and spears. And, and that's why the Yamsuf, the Jewish people say, Adonai Ishmil Chama, Adonai Shemo. It finally hits them. Because they're first learning about Hashem. We know Hashem. We're thousands of years down, down the pike. We have different ways to view Hashem. They're first learning about Hashem. Is he our father? Is he our creator? Is he our redeemer? Is he our savior? Is he our healer? They're learning different ways to relate to Hashem. And at the outset, they realize, oh, Hashem knows how to wage war. This is easy. Not easy, but we'll, we'll be successful. 
So when we say every year in the Haggadah, we're referring to a metaphysical war, figurative, a metaphoric war, excuse me, a figurative war, not an actual war, the 10 events. However, there's a second meaning to this phrase, and that refers to an actual war. The night of Yitzias Mitzrayim, before the plague of the firstborn occurred, civil war erupted in Egypt. The firstborn and their cohorts stormed the palace, demanding that Paro release the Jews, because everything Moshe had prophesied materialized, and now they were targeted. They were in the crosshairs. And you realize, and Rabbi Salavashev talked about this, how psychopathic hatred is of any form, and certainly anti-Semitism, that you're willing to shoot yourself in the leg for your own hatred. Paro had his own firstborn. He was a firstborn. But his hatred was so seething that he couldn't get out of his own way. You think about the reports of, um, of German soldiers being stranded on station platforms, die, willing to get to the front, to Leningrad, Stalingrad, excuse me, to get to, the, get to Normandy, to get to France. But the train carriages were too occupied taking Jews to the death chambers. Who knows, had Hitler not rerouted all those resources through exterminating our people, how World War II would have ended? Anyone's guess. But hatred is psychopathic, is self-defeating, is self-consuming. It's only the oldest hatred, the hatred of the Jewish people. Pyro refuses, and those firstborn and their comrades begin a civil war. And in the first few hours of that night, 60,000 Egyptians, that's no small number for ancient society. 60,000 Egyptians were killed in the Civil War. And the point is that Mechoros was a two-pronged event. The Civil War was, it seemed political, it seemed domestic, it seemed like an Egyptian event. But as we learn through these, this year of our exodus, Hashem operates through nature, and Hashem operates through psychology, and Hashem operates through science, and Hashem operates through politics. Now, it's easier for us to trace Hashem through nature, science, and psychology less so, but it's easier. Politics is a mirage, as if politics is being driven by human decision. To a degree it is, but there are larger algorithms that Hashem is choreographing. So, Makas Becharos is a two-stage event. First, there's an actual war that is fomented by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and then the instruments of the first phase of Makas Bukharas become the victims of the second phase. It's a two-phased event. The instruments of the first phase become the victims of the second phase. The instruments to incite civil war, to kill 60,000 Egyptian civilians, become the victims themselves. And that's why in Halel Haggadol, Kili Olam Chazda, as we know it, we recite, it's Tehillim Kuflam Edvav, Lemake Mitzrayim Bivchorehem. Doesn't say Lemake Bichoros Mitzrayim. Hashem assaulted the Egyptians through their firstborn, Bivchorehem. The firstborn were the instruments, Bivchorehem, and they were also the victims of stage two. So when we say in the Haggadah, Zra Nitriya Zohacherev, we're referring not just to the metaphoric war that the Makos demonstrated or, or simulated, but to an actual war which erupted that night in the streets of Egypt, the streets and alleyways of Egypt, 
which is part of the Makkah, was a two-pronged event. You see why it's so frustrating to spend so much time on Karpas and so much time in Rebeleza ben Azariah's beard and just to ignore the events. And the time is cl- counting down, the clock is ticking, and the core, the core gets ignored. <laughs> this we, we pass over. <laughs> we pass over the core of the Haggadah. Because we're just out of time, because we, we don't invest our time properly, because we're just so excited. And the Sipuritsi Espen Swaim has become, we know, as the Haggadah, rather than describing what happened that night in Egypt. So we only really have time, I think, for one or two more phrases. So let's move forward. Phrase number three. Remember, this is just one out of four psukim. Just to remind us, Pesach number one is descent. Pesach number two is uh, uh, subjugation, persecution. Pesach number three is prayer. Passage number four is redemption. We've so far discussed only two qualifiers of redemption, two out of 30 qualifiers of the events. So just think about how, how limited our engagement is with what actually happened. So the third phrase is maragadol. What does maragadol mean in Parshas Kitavo, in Arami Ovid Avi? So we scan ahead to the Haggadah. And maragadol means zugile shchina, the revelation, the encounter with Hashem, with God. How do we know that the phrase Maragadol refers to an encounter, a rendezvous with the Shekhinah? Because we have a passage in Ve'eschanan that associates the word Maragadol with seeing, not seeing actually in the visual sense, but seeing in the way that we are in the presence of. As Hashem asks us, has, a, has, has um, any God, has a God ever taken one nation from another nation, Be'masos, Be'osos, Be'mosim, Ovimilchama, Ve'erchazaka, Ve'zoani, Tuya, very similar passage to Kitavo. Uvim Mara'im Gedolim, here's our phrase, Mara Gadol, Kichal Asher Asash, Lachem Hashem Melokichad Mimitzrayim, Li'enechav, you saw it. So Mara'im Gedolim in Parshas Veschan, and this Pasuk is associated with Li'enechav. So that means that way up above, when we recite Uvim Mara Gadol in Parshas Arami Ovedavi in Kitabah, must also refer to Gilei Shechina. What does this mean? Well, Sometimes location is everything. The last place you would expect Hashem to conduct the first mass revelation would be the cesspool of paganism that is Egypt. Remember, Moshe couldn't even pray in Egypt. When he prays, he has to leave the city because it is brimming with shrines and smells of shrines and tools of shrines. It's just it's a pagan carnival. You can't stay there. To pray to Hashem, he has to walk away. The first Gila Yishchina in history is Hashem revealing himself to Avraham. Now that Avraham is a bris he's Zoha to Gila Yishchina. The first mass revelation, well, you'd think it's Harsinai, and you'd be wrong. It's the most epic mass revelation. But the first mass revelation is this night in Egypt. In the place you'd expect at least. Maragada reminds us the first Gile Shechina occurred in Egypt. And no one other, no one less than Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the great lover of the Jewish people, noted this. Amar Rabbi Shimon, source number Aleph, Hashem loves us so much I don't care where you are. Where you are, I am. 
place dissolves. I remember when I was dating my wife many, many, many moons ago, I studied in Cambridge University that summer. And my wife was in Israel in a slum called Shunat HaTikva in southern Tel Aviv on a Kirov mission or running a camp for some of the locals. And Cambridge is beautiful and it's pastoral and it's just aesthetically almost indescribable. The, the river and the birds and the trees and the tree-lined walkways. And I cut my trip short and I came home for that last Shabbos to be with her in this sweltering, hot, steamy summer of Shunat HaTikva to be with her that Shabbos in the south of Tel Aviv. And I think that's what clinched it. I have to ask her, that's why she married me. But I think that's what did. I, said, I gave up Cambridge to be with you because I want to be with you. When you're in love with someone, location doesn't matter. Sometimes boys ask me, how do I know if I'm in love with someone? I say, well, if you don't really care where you are, you probably love that person. If you, if you care less where you are, because place becomes secondary to encounter. This is the night not just of theology and redemption, political reformation. This is the night Hashem loves us. Nice shir, shir, a reinstated covenant, a reenacted promise. And that's why this night we brought a carbon, because to draw the shrina, you bring a carbon. And that's why this night we put the blood on the door, not to signal to Hashem, this is a Jewish home. I think Hashem gets the concept. I don't think he needs our blood. And in fact, the blood was glazed on the inside of the post. Hashem didn't even see it, although he has extra vision, but he can see it. But Hashem didn't need to see our blood. As Rabbi Yosef, who was blind, but evidently had vision, remarked, source base, Tana Rabbi Yosef, Shlosha Mizbachos Hayusham. There were three altars, because every carbon needs the glazing of blood. But there's no altar in Egypt. So what served as the altar in Egypt? Al-Hamashkof. The posts, the two posts, and the top posts were the Mizbech. So we brought a carbon, and we drew Hashem's presence. And this, of course, reminds us of a very, very important feature, which we also ignore sometimes. The word Pesach doesn't really mean to pass over or to skip over. If that were true, this Pesach would be somewhat cryptic. I'll pass over Mitzrayim, I'll see the blood. Ufasach Hashem ala Pesach, and I'll skip over the door. And I won't allow the angel of death to enter. Well, if Hashem already skipped that home, why does the end of this verse say, I won't allow the angel of death? If he's already moved to the next house, the angel of death has moved with him. So if Pesach means Hashem skips over the Jewish homes, then what does the end of the verse mean? I won't allow the angel of death to enter your homes. The answer, as many have noted, it's not my chiddush, that one of the phrases, Pesach means three things, actually. But one of the additional layers of Pesach stems from the word piseach. If you put a tziri under the pe, instead of a sego, instead of a pep, you'd have a piseach. A piseach is a lame person. A lame person, when they walk, so I'm actually moving forward a little bit, but I'm moving forward in such small increments that it looks like I'm hovering. The word pisach means to hover, to stay in one place, in one area. So a lame person, though they're walking, they appear to be hovering. That's why when Elio castigates the um, hypocritical, duplicious prophets who want to both be prophets of Hashem and prophets of Baal, he asks them, he challenges them, he excoriates them, Ad al how long are you hovering on each side of the fence? No one's skipping anywhere. They're not skipping each side of the fence. It's like we would say to dance in two chasanas. 
How long will you hover on two sides of, this, of the fence? You want to be a prophet of God, you also want to be a prophet of pagan deities. So the word piseach doesn't mean to skip, it means to hover. What happened that night, and now we can reread this Pasuk, is you brought the carbon Pesach and you applied the blood, which is the advance of the carbon, which clenches the carbon. Once you finish your carbon, here's the key word, Hashem I will hover above your homes. I will hover. My Shrina will envelop you. This is the night of Gilo Shrina. I will envelop your homes. Ufasach Hashem Play on words. I will hover above the doorways. If Hashem is enveloping the homes, who can't get in? The Malachamavas can't get in because Hashem is enveloping the Jewish home. And then the Malachamavas can't enter. So the mechanism was hovering. The effect the next day looked like skipping over. When you woke up the next day, you scan the Egyptian street. Okay, death, 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 no death. Death, 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 no death. It appeared as if Hashem had skipped over the Jewish home because death had skipped over that home. But the mechanism, the nuts and bolts of the savior of the Jewish people was not skipping up. Shem wasn't leaping over a home. Shem was hovering his presence, protecting the Jewish home, not allowing the Malachamavis to enter. And if you don't believe me, listen to Rabbi Yishmael. This is a madrash, and with this I'll conclude. I will reveal myself to you. That's the third in translation, Pesach also means compassion. Chas Pesach sounds phonetic. Pesach means three things. Hovering, skipping, and compassion. Lifsach means to skip over. It also means to hover over. And it means to have Rahmanus, but I won't get into that third meeting. So when we say, and with this I'll conclude, Uvemara Gadol, Zugi Leishchina, Uvemara Gadol, there's the part of the phrase. And in Haggadah, Uvemara Gadol, Zugi Leishchina, we are recounting this night as the first time Sinai in our vernacular. First time Hashem appeared in mass revelation. So these are just two of three of that fifth, of that fourth Pasuk. So as best as you can, spend some time reading at least, even if you're not in control of your own Seder, as thank God I'm not, because both my in-laws, thank God, are alive, so I let them conduct the Seder. Never conducted a Seder in my life, Baruch Hashem. But one day, I may have assumed when I do conduct the Seder, I'm going to announce, everyone dive it up until... Probably won't because I want my grandchildren to recite Manishtana with me beaming with Nachas. But at some point, I'll probably say, let's spend a little time on Salamad before it disappears. And our Seder just becomes introduction, beards, rabbis who spent all night, four children, Dayenu. And we're going to talk about really what happened. So, Chakashav Esamech, and we should be Zocha, Lachosham, Mena Zevachim, and Mena Psachim, and Yushalayim, and Thank you, Yoel, for arranging this year and for everyone.